Okay, tonight um, we are going to be studying um, or learning more about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Um, our last study we talked or we saw how Paul instructed Timothy on how to encourage, treat, and honor respectable God-fearing leaders in the church and how we should also be doing the same. This week we look at what, what to be wary of as far as leaders who have gone astray but not only that, we also see how riches can be a pitfall not only for leaders in our church, but for us as well. We're capable of having the proper perspective of money when our full contentment is in the Lord. Um, I'm going to go through our verses, and I'll read through them, and then I'll pray, and we'll get, we'll get started. Okay. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Father, we just, we come before you, Lord, and this is um, one of those passages in the Bible that might be a really hard pill to swallow, God. Um, but it's your truth, Lord, and it's um, your light, Lord, and we can truly find contentment in you, Lord, um, full contentment in you, God. So just help to show us that tonight, Lord. Um, speak to our hearts, God. If there's anything that we walked in with or, or felt burdened by, Lord, I pray that we would just lay that at your feet, Lord, so that we can hear from you, God, and Anything that might be distracting us, whether it be um, a messy house at home that we left or um, dinner still half on our table, um, crying babies, um, even if it's just heaviness that we're carrying from work or whatever it might be, Lord, I just pray that we would just lay that at your feet, Lord, that we would just have sweet fellowship with our sisters at our table time, God, um, but just ultimately, Lord, that we would just hear from you, God, and that we would not only hear, but we would also do, Lord, that we would do what you tell us to in your word, Lord, that we would walk in your truth. So, God, I just pray that you would go before us, Lord, that you would go before me, Lord, that it wouldn't be anything that I have to say, Lord, but it would be everything that you have to say to these ladies, Lord. So, um, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul begins this set of verses by being very frank with Timothy. He tells him that he should keep his eye out for those who are not rightly dividing the word of truth, as we will see mentioned later in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Their intentions are not ali uh, al aligned I'm sorry, with God's heart for shepherding the flock, um, rather themselves. As it again says in verses 3 through 5, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound doctrine or the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk, 
evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. First, Paul states that they will have, those that are um, shepherding the flock, will not agree to sound instruction and godly teaching. Second John 1 John 1.9 says, Beware of anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, for they do not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Did you hear that first sentence? If we are not abiding in the teaching of God, if we are not connected to the vine, we do not have God. What a scary place to be. When those who are minister of God, ministers of God's word or serving the flock fall away from believing wholeheartedly that God's word is true, this is a big issue. They're no longer serving God but themselves. And we will, sh we will see what this choice of disagreement does when the Lord's word is not involved. When God's order that Paul has been talking about becomes misaligned, a snowball of sin affects, be begins to occur. Secondly, due to not applying the word of God to their own lives and what they teach, they will become conceited and understand nothing. Psalm 119.105 says, God's word should be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating through to the divide of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Because of this ignorance to sound doctrine and godly teaching, paths become darkened, and the light of Christ's word can't penetrate the mess through the mess of their own feelings and the path that they are taking. We can guard ourselves against the same pitfall if we're obedient to reading the word of God and in agreement with his sound doctrine. We must in humility recognize that daily we also need to be washed by the word of God. Colossians 3.12 shares that, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are to be the direct opposite of conceited. We must focus on clothing ourselves in these attributes, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And with God's grace, new every morning, we most surely can. As this snowball of sin continues to get bigger and bigger, we add on, thirdly, an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels resulting in strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicion. In addition to disagreeing with the Lord's word and being prideful, we see next how they will be eager, actually interested, in starting arguments and spreading lies. They will use it as a means to create disruption in the church. Those who misuse God's word may be ex expert debaters on their current doctrinal hobby horse, but their desire to constantly debate with some aspect of doctrine shows their unwillingness to humbly receive the truth. Beware if this sounds like somebody you listen to on the radio or maybe it's a podcast, but also, are we in the same boat? So unwilling to humbly receive some truth that God wants us to hear, so stuck on a certain idea or belief that we might have that we're being ignorant to what God actually wants us to do or wants us to be. 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 25 says, have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies you know that these breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And Proverbs 23, tw chapter 20, verse 3 says, It's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but a fool will be quarreling. The snowball just continues to get larger at this point. 
Fourthly, we see that this kind of heart results in there being constant friction. When disagreement is present, friction can occur. Constant friction within a body of believers is a means for destruction, division, and even demolition. Mark 3:24 through 25 says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. First Corinthians also says in chapter one, verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I understand that as believers, we have our differences in opinions and convictions, but God, what God's word is telling us is that we need to be mature enough in our walks to not let these things divide us. If we do let our differences come between us, the church is going to fall. We, need, we are called to be united and called to walk in unity. Are we taking part in this unity or are we being ladies who cause constant friction? We need to evaluate our lives and apply what God's word says about this. Lastly, we see at the end of verse 5 that they think that godliness is a means to financial gain, meaning that there is a belief that God's word or the sharing or teaching of it could be used for a boost financially, for wealth, or for comfort. It stems from a selfish motivation of a what's-in-it-for-me kind of mindset. I'm very thankful that here at our church we serve in a ministry where our pastor's motivation is not this, but to lovingly shepherd us and teach us the word of God. I can say, being his daughter, that he would go without pay and still be the pastor that he is to you today. <laughs> Sadly, this is not true in every church and among every ministry. We must be mindful of this, and we must be mindful. See, I told you I was <laughs> going to cry and not know it. Um, we must be mindful of this, and if we're giving um, or supporting to any certain ministry that is using godliness as a means to financial gain, so be careful of that. Paul now takes a shift in our focus and highlights where we can have the right kind of gain as believers, as verse 6 goes on to say, godliness with contentment, that's great gain, or it is great gain. He says that the believer who is godly and content has truly found wonderful spiritual riches, as we will learn more about in our next Bible study. Paul spoke with much experience in this area, as he says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, not that I speak in regard for need, but I have learned in whatever state I am, I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everything and in all things, I have learned to be both full and hungry, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He had truly learned that his perspective towards the Lord, his walk, his contentment, could not lie in his material or financial status. He expressed that he knew what it meant to be both in need and to be with much. But in every circumstance, he was able to be content because he kept his eyes on eternal things. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 warns us of this and says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Ladies, all this world has to offer um, things that are slowly passing away. Nothing comes with us to heaven. So why are we itching so much 
to gain so much here on earth materially. Now, disclaimer, I don't believe that God's word is telling us here that we need to live boring lives with nothing new, everything broken, and live like we're poor because for some reason that always seems like it's more spiritual. Um, I believe what God's word is communicating here through Paul is that we need to have our priorities straight. And we must be careful that we're not allowing our state of contentment to be based off of our material state here on earth. Whether it be that we have much or that you have little. How quickly can we be guilty of this? Our state of contentment being reliant on our material state or status. Oh, I would just be happy if I had fill in the blank. If my situation was fill in the blank. Socrates says, he who is content with what he has, or I'm sorry, he who is not content with what he has will not be content with what he wants either. For example, if only my kitchen were updated, if I didn't work at this job, if my house wasn't in this location, if I only had a husband, if I had a house instead of my apartment, if I had her closet and not mine, if I had that car or this car, the list could go on and on and on and on. Have you ever heard the saying, someone dreams of the life that you have? That should keep you very, 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 very thankful. Someone somewhere is looking at your life right now and sees it as extremely blessed. We are extremely blessed. We live in the United States of America. And um, I've gone on one mission trip before to the Dominican and to see what things that they have and how grateful and thankful uh, they are to just meet somebody from America <laughs> um, or to be given a different type of food that they don't normally have or even simply just to hear the gospel um, is extremely humbling. And if, if you're struggling with that, um, with the feeling of, I, I want all the time, I just, I want more of, um, or I need more of, maybe you do need more of. Remember the lyrics to this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. In my very short 27 years of life, I've completely found this to be true. Nothing satisfies the human soul like Jesus. It only is when that I it is only when I have been walking in his truth, keeping my eyes focused and my relationship with him on I shouldn't say on point, but that's what came to my head on point. <laughs> that I truly have the greatest contentment. It's not when everything is perfect that I'm the most content. And it's so easy as women, especially in the varying seasons that we're all in, and with the hormones that we all have, to have wavering contentment. Contentment that varies based on the situation of life that we're in. C.S. Lewis says, we ought surely to be thankful with such things we have, for he who has God has more than all the world. So how can we, how can we sustain this type of contentment? Um, Number one, I found out, you know, that realizing that God is all that we have or ever need, as it says in 2 Peter 1.3, that by his divine power, God has given us everything we need 
to live a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And then in Philippians 4.19, that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Number two, you can maintain a thankful heart. Um, I don't know if you remember in the last study, I brought up uh, that little book that my friend gave me and how um, sometimes I will sit down and I'll list out all the things that I'm thankful for. That continues to help me even at this stage of my life. Um, and I've just learned over the years, like when I start to grow discontent in something, I need to just physically sit down and I need to just write Thank you, God, for the sun. It's shining today. Thank you, God, for the heat in my house today. I'm so thankful I have heat in my house. Thank you, God. You know, like even the smallest and simplest of things, that's something that can realign my heart with um, being content. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is Christ's will for you. Number three, we can keep our minds focused on Christ. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Number four, we need to be daily renewing our minds. I don't know about you, but um, obviously through different seasons, sometimes our time with the Lord can be harder and it can be easier. Obviously, when life is busier, when life is not as busy, just sometimes, I don't know about you, but like sometimes your walk with the Lord like feels like this, or I guess to your devotions, <laughs> um, even though the Lord is stays the same the whole way through. But I have seen that in my own life, um, if I'm not daily renewing my mind, that's when I start to fall back into these sinful patterns that I know I'm prone to be sinning in, and, and this is one. <laughs> This is one that I can struggle in. Uh, Romans 12, uh, 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. With this, Paul continues on with a sobering reminder that will also help us if we keep it up at the forefront of our minds as well. Verses 7 through 8 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we can be content with that. Candidly, we were all born into the world in the same way, naked. Even though we were all born into different families with different financial statuses, we all share this one thing, obviously, other than being sinners, in common <laughs> from birth, is that we came in with nothing right? We didn't come out of the womb with the cutest outfit, with our nails done, with our hair done, or with a pocket full of cash. Nope, we came out with nothing. We didn't even come out with a plan for our future. Job 1.21 says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord still be praised. Likewise, when it comes our appointed time to leave the earth, when our book ends, as my dad says, we bring no material things with us. Paul narrows it down to the simplest of things. If we have food and clothing, we can be content with even just that. Imagine that. That's hard. <laughs> That's a hard pill to swallow. Um, I don't say all of this to make you feel bad, but to help you and I remember and recognize how stinking blessed we are. Even to just have clean water and the clothing that you have on your back tonight, we're very blessed. 
Paul goes on to say, even give a warning as he lastly says in verse 9 and 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is not saying that it's a bad thing to work hard, have financial goals, or to be wealthy. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. What Paul is saying is that we must beware of the temptation of the love of money and what it can lead us into. No matter your financial status, whether rich or poor, our flesh is always desiring more. It is the love of money that has the ability to trap us, to give us foolish and harmful desires, and even lead us into ruin and destruction. The love of money, again, not money itself, it says, is a root of all kinds of evil. Love of money has led many people far from the heart of contentment. It poses itself as providing that contentment for us, but really just has us in a cycle of always wanting more, right? You do something in your house, you get something redone, you buy a new outfit, you put it on, what do you want a week later? I don't know, maybe not you, I do. I want a new outfit again. <laughs> the Lord clearly knew that the, the love of money would be a pitfall for mankind, and this is why the Bible is filled, old and new, with many warnings towards love of money and greed. There are, there are 2,350 verses about money in the Bible, and Jesus preached 11 parables on the subject. In all of his wisdom, he gave us simple stories so we may learn how to be wise and how to view money. Here's a few examples. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Luke 12.15 says, Then he said, Beware, guard yourself against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your character or moral disposition be free from the love of money, including greed, lust, and craving for earthly possessions, and be satisfied with your present circumstance and what you have. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, or leave you without support. I read something that directly applied to the subject of contentment and love of money, and it was really convicting to me. It said, so often Christians get so involved in our day-to-day -day activities of earning a living, raising a family, that we really forget what our real purpose is, to serve God. They discover that their lives are out of balance, and they don't know how to bring them back into balance. So they buy more things, or get rid of things, in order to bring back that balance. However, nothing seems to work. Christians get trapped into a discontented life by adopting worldly goals. More, bigger, best. The Bible identifies these as indulgence, greed, and pride. 
Greed is not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. The definition of greed is uncontrolled longing for increase, selfish, and excessive desire for more. One can be greedy if they are poor, and one can also be greedy if they are wealthy. Have we been knowingly letting this sin creep into our lives? Desire for more and discontentment can also look like this in our life. Sandy McIntosh, a Calvary Chapel pastor's wife, uh, loves to share lists of words that, with the, that all start with the same letter. I forget what that's called, and I was a teacher, but it's called something. Bethany, do you know what it's called? It, yes, alliteration. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but this list applied to women when they start to get unhappy and discontented with what they do have. So this is, this is the list, okay? First, we start to covet. We start to desire what belongs to somebody else. Then we start to get crabby. We become very easy, easily irritable, and we start to not like that person. <laughs> then we start to complain. We express dissatisfaction with our life and what's wrong with it and why we should really deserve what they have. Then we become contentious. We start to cause disagreement. Then we start criticizing, indicating faults, maybe with that person and why they shouldn't have what they have. Or maybe this is with you and your husband, and then the last one is you start to challenge. Well, why are we spending money in this way when we could do it with this? Well, why? I can personally attest to this kind of sinful spiral for myself. I know that contentment is something that I have struggled with greatly in many seasons of my life, and it's something that I need to have the armor of God for so I can battle off temptations when they arise. My grandma best puts it, she who is richest is whose pleasures are cheapest. Paul says discontentment is desiring more, and it can lead to having people wander from the faith and piercing themselves with many griefs. So why would we want to be discontent? <laughs> why, why would I want that? <laughs> Greed would steer us away from walking away from Jesus, trusting his hand, his provision over our lives. Mark 4 shares the parable of the sower. Verses 18 through 19 say, Still others, like seed sown among the thorn, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in, and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The longing for more not only has the ability to give us a life of discontentment, but it also has the ability to choke God's word out of our own lives. Having us wander far off from our walk with Christ, and not only that, but causing us more grief than we already think that the grief of discontentment is that we're experiencing. Are we struggling with discontentment, the longing for more? Do we want God's word to be fruitful in our own lives? We must live out the truth that in Christ, we have every single thing that we need. This morning in my devotions, um, I was reading through Hebrews 11, which talks about um, many people in the Bible who lived um, these wonderful lives of faith. And um, Moses' life really struck, stuck out to me. Um, because I feel like his life really can relate to the culture that we live in here in, in America. 
Moses chose the path of righteousness even when being surrounded by co- the constant temptation and the, great, uh, and the greatest riches you could have been experiencing in this time frame growing up in Pharaoh's household. Um, but in Hebrews 11, let me actually turn there real quick. It says this. But by faith, Moses, when he became aged, Hebrews eleven twenty four, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than all the riches and the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses was somebody who could have had probably everything he ever longed or wished for living with Pharaoh and his daughter, but he chose the way of the Lord because he knew that was right and that was what was pleasing to the Lord and that what was offered around him was causing people, like these verses say, to wander from the faith and to have many griefs like all of the people in Egypt. So I pray that we learn from that I know I warred and learned through it, and I'm still learning through it today <laughs> and going forward. But uh, I, I pray that our table time is blessed, and um, let me pry us out. Then you can have your table time. <laughs>